When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hi there, this is The Athletic Football Podcast, aligned with Manchester United and Newcastle because it's time to concentrate on the Premier League. It's match day 17. I'm Adam Leventhal, and alongside me at the Athletic HQ is Tifo's John McKenzie. How are you, John? Hello. I always feel like I'm in the football media when I do podcasts with you. I feel a lot more important than when someone else is hosting a podcast or something that I'm on. Oh, that's, that's nice of you to say. You really get the, the juices going when it's... That intro just fires me up and now I'm ready to go. Check out my juices, okay? But I'll raise you Ooh. some more juices because Tim Spears is on the show. How are you, Tim? What's up? <laughs> Brilliant. You delivered. Uh, Jacob Whitehead is here as well. How are you? I'm good. I always like being in this room. The fake sort of grass makes it feel like I'm on the podcast equivalent of FIFA Street, which uh, <laughs> yeah, nice. sort of, you know, feel like I've got to bring out a bit of flair, a few moves rather than the more kind of steady 11-a-side version. <laughs> Excellent. I like it. Good. Um, thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you to everyone who is listening and also for watching as well because all of our episodes are now available via the Athletic Football Podcast YouTube channel. That's a domain that you're used to, of course. Mm. Uh, John, you're used to being in vision. You're very much an envision man, aren't you? A face for TV, yeah, that's yeah, what I say. Yeah, yeah. Let's run through the fixture formation for this weekend. It is a one-five-four setup. We have an FNF before Saturday and Sunday. Uh, the Friday night football is Forest with Steve Cooper still under a bit of pressure against Spurs off the back of a huge win against Newcastle. Then on Saturday, we have four 3 p.m.s. Bournemouth now in brilliant form, four wins out of five against third bottom Luton. Plucky Luton, but they still lose. Uh, Chelsea, who are 12th against Sheffield United, who are still bottom. Uh, Manchester City in fourth, four points off the top against Crystal Palace, who've lost five out of eight. Newcastle, three defeats in a row for them, including that European exit take on Fulham, who only win 5-0. Saturday evening, it is the Sean Dyche derby, Burnley against Everton. Then on Sunday, 3-2 p.m. It's 9th against 13th. West Ham against Wolves, Brentford against Aston Villa, who could go top, depending on what Arsenal do against Brighton, also at two o'clock. And then Sunday afternoon, it is the leaders, Liverpool against Manchester United. And that is where we start. So we begin with the biggest game of the weekend, Liverpool heading in the right direction and... I will ask you each to complete this sentence. So Liverpool heading in the right direction against Manchester United. Who, John? Are not. Tim? Yeah, really, they're not. <laughs> and Jacob? Is there a right direction? Ooh. Well, uh, 
like what direction kind of are they or more okay well if liverpool are the right direction yeah <laughs> manchester united are kind of not heading in any direction at all they're floating <laughs> they're spin drift right you were half half clever and half silly there. just get on with it um but yes we'll we'll maybe just leave it for a moment on manchester united and deal with the, the positive side of this story which is liverpool and they obviously will have fond memories of the last time these two teams met 7-0 uh, in this fixture back in march they're top of the league john they left it late against crystal palace obviously roy hodgson was was annoyed about all of that are you convinced by them as a top of the lot side yes funny you should ask that i did a tifo football podcast on liverpool this week with josh williams who, who works for reach and he we, i talked to him about this question right at the end of that podcast and he was saying i still don't know if they're any good this, this liverpool 2.0 as we're calling them this rebuild that jürgen klopp has done and yeah i think I'm, I'm in the same boat like there's certain things that you can say liverpool are very good at and there's other things where you think Surely they'd need to be better at that if they were to challenge for the title. And I think that's a really interesting question, especially given the fact that we have on top of all of this, this layer of usually to win the Premier League title in the Pep Guardiola era, you have to be perfect because Man City are going to be perfect. And this season feels a little bit like Man City have declined a little bit, which means it's opened the door for Liverpool, Arsenal to come in and actually have a really good go at challenging for the title, albeit in very different ways. Liverpool with a really exciting attack and maybe questions about the way they defend and Arsenal the other way around really really strong defence but questions about the way they attack so uh, yeah it's all set us up for quite a nice denouement to the to the title race but um, in terms of whether or not I'm convinced by Liverpool I'm not sure denouement? no no, no <laughs> not having it um, no just don't know no just don't know <laughs> yeah, for people listening what, what, what did you just say then? <laughs> it, it just means the end it's a fancy way of, of saying it but we were talking about Roy Hodgson before the podcast so you know oh we were I uh, yes. throw in some fancy words for you and his use of the word amalgam pronounced in an interesting way amalgam mm. yeah fair enough each of their own Tim on Liverpool mm. do you see them as going from strength to strength in this season and being front runners from from now on in or are you sort of still on the fence in terms of their convincingness no I think they're there what I like about them is that they're not relying on one or two players in particular obviously Salah's goals but they're really mixing it up their bench is very strong and they're still missing some key players uh, well obviously at the moment they've got McAllister and Robertson and Jota out but um, yeah his use of the bench was picked up in an article on The Athletic this week uh, Jurgen Klopp's use of his bench and he's made more subs than anyone else but they've used the second fewest number of players so 23 players and 138 substitutions which just sort of suggests a very good use of his squad but they've got a, a, a substantial core core group bigger bigger than some of their rivals I would say obviously subs are doing very well for them Harvey Elliott scored the winner last week 11 goals from subs this season in all comps which is a, a league high They've obviously got this revolving attack, but also midfield, lots of options. Curtis Jones was a key player earlier in the season. You know, he's he's on the bench now. They could bring on Gakpo the other day, Joe Gomez, Elliot Canate. Um, so they look really strong. They look they look set for the course for me. I'm not sure they'll be sort of runaway leaders come next April, but they they're going to be there or thereabouts. I think there's just so much quality there, and not just an eleven. They're unbeaten in their last seven against Manchester United. They've received the green light on 7,000 extra seats ahead of the game. So it's going to be one of their biggest ever crowds. It's just got all the makings for another Liverpool win, hasn't it, Jacob? Especially the way that Manchester United arrive. 
Yeah, I mean, well, Manchester United haven't even scored at Anfield in the league since I think it was 2018, which is uh, faintly ridiculous seeing as it's kind of meant to be a rivalry yeah. and it's only been one-way traffic so far. I mean, stuff moves so quickly, though, doesn't it? I mean, a month ago, Newcastle, uh, Newcastle, Liverpool started their November quite poorly. They lost to Toulouse in the Europa League. They had a draw with Luton where they're potentially quite lucky to even come out of that with a point at all before sort of churning out these relatively imperfect, ugly wins, but still winning. And that is kind of a point of encouragement that they are very much only at 75-80%. So when you get these players back, the likes of Jota, McAllister, who have been out, there is kind of an extra level there. It's not like they're already maxed out. If um, Liverpool are churning out imperfect performances... Uh, what would you call Manchester United at the mo- at the moment? What word would you use? In- inconsistent, perhaps. Um, I, obviously, the is that as bad as it goes? Yeah, it's just real, inconsistent. I think it's, uh, I think worse it's very nice of you. Yeah, I think I, th- I think it, it's tough because you know in in all of the games that they're that, you know they're losing, the, the, there are games every once in a while where you think you know they're doing they're doing something okay there. I think part of the problem is perhaps that in the November that they just had where they cleaned up loads of awards and won a lot of games. Uh, a lot of those games were won quite unconvincingly and there was a sort of shadow of things to come in, in that period. Had those results not gone maybe the same way, then we might be talking about Manchester United in a slightly different way, much more critical. But um, I think that, you know, it never rains, it pours. And I think that we the tendency is always to go too far the other direction and say, this team is completely irredeemable. When I think that there's obviously things about about them that I think they could salvage this, maybe not in the way that people think that they should salvage it. And the question is whether or not, you know, being being the sixth out of the top six is is a, a prize worth fighting for. I don't know, but it's crazy how quickly the narrative has shifted, right? Because last season, I mean, I had Manchester United, I think, in second place coming into the season in terms of predictions of league finishes just because I tend to go for consistency and I, we, we'd seen Man United have a so-called good transfer window. They brought in the players that they wanted to do. I didn't see any reason why they couldn't carry on playing the way that they were playing and it's dropped off very quickly. And we could talk about the ins and outs of why we think that's happened from a tactical point of view. But I don't think that overnight this this squad has suddenly gone from being a, you know, a Champions League contending squad to a mid-table squad as it looks like they are right now. So I think there's maybe something more to it than just... Oh, look, it's Manchester United. They're, they're terrible again. So obviously they're coming off the back of that defeat against Bournemouth 3-0, a real humbling. Um, and then a lacklustre performance in Europe against Bayern Munich. Just picking up on what John said there about inconsistency. Tim, for you, when you see a team being inconsistent, what does it tell you about the the culture at the club and, and maybe how the, how the, what the manager is doing? I mean, the culture seems pretty rotten to me from the outside. The ill discipline. But Scott of... McTominay says it's not toxic. It has been to- toxic in the past. It's not toxic yeah, now. People have got to ignore that because oh. he's, he's in a press conference before a Champions League game and he's been asked about the dressing room morale. Yeah. He's not going to say it's terrible. That's just white noise for me, really. Sorry, Scott. So dismissive. <laughs> no, I don't know. Yeah. What, what else is he going to say when asked that question? Well, he could say uh, it, it's difficult. It's not the best place, obviously, because we're losing games. He could. He could say that. The fact, I suppose, the fact that he was having to rule out it being toxic does maybe lend yeah, itself to well, the fact to that fair, that's a big discussion. I'm point. sure it has been worse when when 
you know, Ronaldo and potentially Pogba were, were disruptive influences on, on that dressing room with managers who couldn't handle it, then yeah, I can imagine it was worse. But it doesn't feel much better now. And we talk about inconsistency. They're actually very consistent because they lose to all the teams that put them <laughs> in the table. And they and they unconvincingly beat Brentford 2-1 with stoppage time goals and Luton 1-0 and Sheffield United 2-1, you know, with bad performances here or, or in, in different average performances. So I think it's pretty shocking how poor they are. I think they've gone backwards. It's only the uncertainty over the ownership and a lack of alternatives in a and another head coach that's sort of keeping this going, I think. Now, this will annoy Manchester United fans, but do you enjoy seeing Manchester United fail and looking lacklustre? Yeah, from a personal point of view, yeah. If you're asking me, as, a, as not as a journalist at all, but yeah. as a fan, yeah, I grew up in the 90s, so, yeah, with a dislike of Manchester United. No offence. Well, no, because I, I, I saw a... I won't name him, but I saw a journalist, a thread from a journalist who'd been at the game, and he was saying, it's not good for English football to have a huge superpower like Manchester United struggling because it shows someone so big or a club so big can be hollowed out and, and suffer. But you're quite happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, no, I, that's I, fine. I'm not saying that it's right That doesn't or wrong. mean I can't talk about them in glowing terms and, and, no. give, and give a neutral assessment of their performances. But yeah, as a, purely as a fan, I'm sure we all have our particular likes and dislikes of certain teams, Adam. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, I don't want to talk about Luton yet. We'll talk about them later. Um, a, a bit more on, on Manchester United and the fact that, yes, they've, they've been inconsistent, but they have got over the line in some games. They've most of the time needed Bruno Fernandes to do that because he has done the best things that they have done in a difficult run. And he's not going to be there because he's picked up five bookings. That's a, that's a bit of a hit, isn't it? Yeah, the thing which always strikes me about Ten Hag's Manchester United is that they don't feel like a team of problem solvers. They can go out and they can sort of hit their plan A and if they're allowed to do what they set out to do, they can put out good performances. Whenever they're kind of challenged or something comes slightly unexpected, they're very badly equipped to deal with that. Now, some of it might be the culture and having to pick each other up together. Some of it might be a lack of tactical flexibility with some of the squad they have. But Bruno Fernandes is probably the player they have who is most capable to solve problems on the field, to adjust stuff, to have the tactical understanding, to move people around and to even feed back to the manager. And he's got his own technical ability to make stuff happen, whether it's assisting, scoring, whatever. So without him, when Manchester United are given these challenges and the bar to what constitutes a challenge seems to be getting lower and lower and lower every week, they're going to be in quite a lot of trouble without him. Before we came on air... John and I were sat around the uh, the lunch table. Uh, Art de Rocher came over and he taught us a new word. He did. Which was shipping. Okay? Shipping. I obviously thought um, that's three to five working days, <laughs> postage and packaging. Um, it's not that. It is... John, tell us what it is in brief. Well, as, as far as I understand it, I'm, I was in, in the dark as much as you are, but it's it's when you sort of create this fan fiction about about individuals within whatever cultural artifact yeah. that you're interested in so it could be i think the example given was harry potter and finding a couple of uh, characters in that who you think these should definitely or, or they actually are in a relationship in this fictional world but i suppose you, you you're gonna suggest we could apply it to football i am i am you saw that coming a mile off um, i don't like the way that you're still looking at me as so i'm gonna be the the guinea pig in this well in this test. it is it is more i'm trying to sort of draw that into manchester united and obviously eric ten Hag is still in charge and he may well stay in charge for a long period of time. We're waiting to see what the INEOS impact has at Manchester United. But if 
Eric Ten Hag weren't to be there, who would you bring in? Because there's been strong links over the last 24 hours with, with the likes of Graham Potter. Um, not Harry Potter, <laughs> Graham Potter. Who would you see as the, as the right guy? And if Potter were to be the guy, is that the right there's too many Ship layers to here. sail in. My, my head is my head is all of a whirl, but uh, especially with when it comes to Man United at the moment, shipping is the only thing they usually ship is goals, right? So it's good. There's already let's get that joke in mm, out of the way. It's interesting. I've just made a video for Tifo actually, how to fix Manchester United, uh, and I focused on what are the five things that uh, Jim Ratcliffe has to do once he takes over sporting control of the club. And the first thing that I've got on that list is bring in a sporting director who can protect the long term interests of the club, the long-term sporting interests of the club. For me, the most important thing for them to do is to bring in sporting director, get him to sort out the philosophy of the club in terms of what they want them to be doing in, a, in, a, in terms of playing style, develop a game model and say, this is the way we want our teams to play. This coach is going to be the person that we're going to trust to enact that vision on the pitch. And then all of the departments around that then are all going to be focused on delivering that vision on the field. So we're recruiting players against that game model. We're not just recruiting players for Eric Ten Hag. We're saying Eric Ten Hag is trying to adopt this vision on the field. The recruitment department are bringing in players to be able to suit that style of play. And then everyone everyone orbiting around the, the sporting director then should have the short-term goal of being able to bring that out. So I think I've maybe deflected the question a little bit here. But I do think that this is... A lot of people responding to that video have said, the solution is sack Eric Ten Hag and bring in this coach. And we've seen Man United do that for years. They've, they've always sacked the coach and brought in a new coach. Sometimes it's taken longer than maybe other clubs would have done. But I think the, the, the root problem here is, is that there hasn't been that long-term vision. You bring in a coach like Eric Ten Hag, who plays a very certain style of way, uh, style of play, and then at the beginning of last season, loses a couple of games and then goes to ultra-pragmatism. And now we're in this, again, this sort of constant churn where it's like he's, he's got so used to just having short-term results that they've not been able to do any of the long-term stuff. And I think that's because of the pressure that's put on the manager to be able to, to have these short-term results. So for me, it's just a culture change that's needed. Once you've sorted out that culture change in terms of how you look in terms of long-term vision, then you can start worrying about managers. It's remarkable that they haven't done that. It's crazy. People look at Fergie leaving, obviously, as being, as being the before and after point. But David Gill left at that time, which I think was a really underrated loss, which was he was never really placed in terms of management at a senior level. And what John has just described there is exactly how you end up with I believe I'm right in saying the highest net spend in world football mm -hmm. in the last 10 years and barely a thing to show for it. And now Johnny Evans at centre-half. Mm. That's that's what happens. So this is not Eric Ten Hag's fault. He's, he's not been the perfect head coach right now, but he's got a lot to deal with and a rotten dressing room and gaping holes above, above him in terms of structure and plan and vision. Basic stuff. Postacoglu says it pretty simply from a Spurs point of view. He's like, the best clubs in have a plan, they invest in it and they stick with it. Man United haven't done that for a decade now. Pretty simple. That said, will they win at Anfield? <laughs> Let's get our uh, score predictions. Jacob? Absolutely not. Imagine if we just had that conversation for 10 minutes and I go for work. <laughs> I think it's going to be 3-1, boys. No, um, I think it's going to be 3-0 to Liverpool. 3-0? It's hard to make any kind of case. If, if Maguire doesn't play, he kind of held them together at Newcastle when they lost 1-0 a few weeks ago, like a one-man defence. That's the only way they can get a draw out of this game. It's... 5% chance of a win. Yeah, I don't see it happening. I think it'd be a heavy defeat. Yeah, and both Maguire and Shaw went off injured, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, didn't they against uh, Bayern? Your prediction, John? Man United and Liverpool are both best when they're playing transitional football. So I expect this game to go 
quite end-to-end. I think the reason why Liverpool do that is because they know that most of the time they're going to win if they play in that way because they're going to have just much better firepower than, than other teams. But as we know, Manchester United can occasionally pull off these results against big sides when those games become transitional. So I do think it's not maybe as much of a foregone conclusion as people are suggesting, but given what we've said... And just given two fact, numbers, John. Two numbers. Uh, Liverpool will win 2-0. 2-0. Two two nil. And, and should Graham Potter be the next manager? Um, <laughs> yes or no? I, they could do worse. Okay, good. Next up, an emboldened Sean Dyche returns to Burnley with Everton. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So Sean Dyche has only faced Burnley at Turf Moor once before, and it was his first match as a manager back in August 2011. Would you like a quick quiz? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, who was he managing? Watford. Correct. What was the score? They won, 1-0. No, it was 2-2. And there were three players... On the pitch for Burnley, three of which still play in the Premier League, one of which still plays for Burnley. Can you name those three players? 2011, Burnley, three of them are still playing in the Premier League. 12 years ago. Yeah. Any guesses? Three really blank faces. They've still got Jack Cork. No. Charlie Taylor. No. Not Tarkovsky, is it? No. Who plays up front? Got a ponytail. Rodriguez. Correct. Oh, he's still well, there. And there was two other well, players. He's, he's, One gone, who, he's gone and come back. It doesn't quite count. Well, it sort but. of does. Um, <laughs> two other players. One plays for Newcastle. Cheapest. Kieran Trippier. Two Trippier. children. Kieran Trippier. And this is like I'm leading them, leading both of them across the road. Right, here we go. Come on. Come on. Burnley quizzes. It's not working. It's not working. It's, I don't, it doesn't matter, does it? Trippier <laughs> and me. Move on. You? A win. Yeah, not, not me. It may as well have been me. I may as well have been playing. And that was the, the least successful quiz that I've ever taken part in. Uh, a win could see Everton seven, point, seven points, seven points clear of the relegation zone. It's a huge game for our Everton fan, Jacob Whitehead, in the studio. You must be, it's weird, 10 points deducted, but absolutely loving life at the moment, right? And I think points is correct because it shows the extent <laughs> to which the PL has embedded themselves <laughs> in Everton's <laughs> season. Fantastic. Um, but no, I mean, it's basically already been almost caught up with in terms of they had the loss to Manchester United uh, straight after the deduction and then three successive wins since, which it feels far longer. It was only under Carlo Ancelotti the last time that Everton won three successive games. So not awful. It feels awful. Um, But it's weird to have optimism. I was saying to a friend the other day, it kind of reminds me quite a lot of the early David Moyes days when there was an overperformance 
in the squad in a relatively kind of no-name group uh, who all really together for each other and galvanised by something as opposed to sort of eight years of underperformance. And it's quite nice to have that flip. However, Burnley with a point to prove, Everton, slight danger of overlooking this after three wins against probably more successful sides. It's I'm still wary. I've still got the Everton doubt in me. But that's just that's just you as an Everton fan, isn't it? That's you know, you shouldn't really be worried because you're heading in the right you're you are heading in the right direction, much like Liverpool. Yeah. 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 Let me just cross to our moral compass in the room, uh, Tim Spears. Um with Manchester United, you've already said you'd like to see a big club like that fail. With um, Everton Can't wait for the YouTube and the, and the, ten, and the, uh, the 10 point deduction, the fact that they are fighting back and you're seeing a, a galvanised group and they're sort of that siege mentality. Do you, do you like that at the same time or do you think, oh, I would have liked to have seen that 10 points really sort of get them down in the dirt and, and see them flushed out of the Premier League? I, I think they've been a bit hard done by with the, okay. amount, the amount of points that have been taken off them. People will inevitably talk about fighting spirit and, you know, backs to the wall and togetherness. But it's about more than that. They're playing good football, effective football, than they were before this. You know, the numbers were always, John's underlying numbers would have said, they were doing pretty well anyway, or they weren't far off. They're just missing a couple of key players and worked to do it both ends of the pitch. But he's done that. They got 22 points from the last 11 games. This is not. We've had ten points taken off us. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna start fighting harder. You know, there's a good team here, yeah. and that's why it's a weird one. This game because you look at it and you think six pointer, but it's not really because if Everton continue on the path they're on, they're going to be nowhere near relegation. You know, Burnley are looking at Forest and Palace to potentially try and catch, and they're a long way behind. So yeah, Everton really impressed with how they play to their strengths. You know, it is. Yeah, it's direct. It's long balls. It's it's quick. It's set pieces. It's counters. Not much possession, but lots of shots. And uh, he's got them working in a short space of time. And as Jacob will know, that's not easy with a club which has had a losing culture for the past sort of couple of years. So to be 10th in theories is one of the jobs of the season so far, I think. I think that the last three goals they've scored kind of shows off some of this development. Kind of everyone's got their head, the image in their heads of what Dice Ball is. And it's not that. The third goal against Newcastle was a 29 pass flowing move which Beto finished off, sort of, and Everton are not a massively technical side. I mean, that is a sort of impressive thing to do, even against a tired Newcastle side, as we are always told. The first goal um, was against Chelsea, was massively direct. Dysha said, sometimes we do play it out the back if we can do it quickly. It's all about changing the picture rather than just getting it forward quickly. Mikelenko, massively improved player, beautiful through ball to McNeil, drives onwards, Decore puts away a good rebound. And the third goal, we're back to the classic Dysha, it's a set piece, it's chaos, it's a rebound and it's a cracking finish from Dobbin. But just kind of the variety in those last three goals, how it's not just one type of football, it's the basics, but it's also direct, vertical, kind of shows just how much they're developing. Let's go to the underlying numbers of Tim. Dyche No. Yeah. <laughs> Dyche Who doesn't have a ball? That, like, I, I, I would not, uh, to be honest, Jacob... Dyshball. Uh, I wouldn't say Dyshball is a thing. I think it's. De- I don't think I've come up with that. I think it's definitely been. I think Dyshball would have probably previously been used as a as a stick to beat Burnley with. 
it does sort of sound like a piece of technology which James Dyson would have come up with. <laughs> Tell us about the underlying numbers of, of, yeah, well, of Dyson. In terms of the expected goals, and as we know, expected goals, just they, they take the, the, the chances that are created and try and assess the quality of those chances. When Sean Dyson first arrived at Everton, Everton were putting up relegation numbers in terms of their attacking um, approach. Now they've jumped up to European qualification levels with their numbers in very much at the beginning of this season. So they, they jumped up. I actually made a video at the beginning of the season saying Everton are better than people think. That uh, improvement has, has uh, continued and, and now Everton are... I mean, it, I guess if we get rid of their points deduction, they'd be in the top half of the table. And that seems, according to the underlying numbers at any rate, entirely justifiable. And this is the interesting thing about this iteration of Dijkspoor, right? As you said, it was previously maybe a stick. I'd sorry, I just I see every time anyone says anything with ball at the end of it, a part of Tim dies. Spears ball. Yeah. He, he, <laughs> Gary ball was the was the one that was, I know, all right, it's Gaz ball, but it's it, you know. Oh. Yeah, it's too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> Carry on. I'm simply using it to wind up Tim yeah. from, from here on in. But um yeah, you said it was a stick stick to beat Burnley with. Yeah. What we've seen since Sean Dyche came in at Everton is is a very different approach. It is about, as Jacob was saying, this ability to attack directly and effectively it's not just about being able to defend in a low block for for long periods and and try and hit on the break it is very much based around actually we are going to try and be more of an attacking team than worrying about about our defensive numbers so yeah it it, it's it's quite frankly impressive what what has happened clearly since Sean Dyche went away he's been spending some time thinking about how he's going to develop his approach to football and we're seeing the I think the fruits of it now um, in in the Premier League. Simply because he panned my Burnley quiz, I'm going to ask Tim about um, Burnley's performances of late. The fact that they drew against Brighton and also beat Sheffield United in their last three games. I know at at that point that was when uh, Heckenbottom was on on his final moments. But the shoots are slightly green for for Burnley there's something there that could be worked with that could edge them out of the relegation zone I mean, do you they think ha- they have improved pretty pretty considerably from the start of the season um you know the last few results as you say beat Sheffield 5-0 they should have beat West Ham at home but got done with those two late goals which is a real killer and then they should have got something from Wolves away to be honest but they just don't have that belief uh I don't think but they're defensively Performances have improved. For three games in a row, they had XG conceded of, of fewer than one. And they got a point at Brighton despite being yeah far inferior team. There are shoots of recovery. I just think it's I think it's already too late, to be honest. I don't see who I don't see who they're gonna catch. If Everton continue as they are, I don't see who they're gonna catch. And they're missing a goal scorer and um there's still some defensive naivety at times. If they started the season like this, you'd give them a fighting chance, but I just don't don't see it happening. Score predictions, Jacob. How many are your boys going to win by? Just one goal. 2-1. Two, 2-1. Two, one. Two, one. Two, one. Tim? I think it'll be one all. I think I think a lot of Burnley players in the crowd will really raise themselves for the for the return of Dyche. And funny things happen when that kind of thing happens. So one all. Two numbers from John. <laughs> I'm going to say nil and three. Nil three. Everton okay. to win. Yeah. Because Go they have on. been good, good away yeah. from home they'll as well. Get the, they'll get the first goal and then Burnley will collapse. Okay. Up next... 12th place Chelsea have just one victory in five, but they hope to get back to winning ways. They are up against Sheffield United, though. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. 
and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. So last weekend, Chris Wilder got his first win since returning as Sheffield United manager. They head to Stamford Bridge to face a Chelsea side in desperate need of a win. John, Mauricio Pochettino seemed as if he'd got them in a better sort of fettle, didn't he? But now they're closer to the relegation zone, just 10 points above the drop zone than they are to the top five. What is happening with, with Chelsea at the minute? Because before people were saying, no, no, they're not playing that bad and they will get results. Eh, now it's a bit more meh. Yeah, it's funny. I'm doing a video this week on Trent Alexander-Arnold and what I've done to show how well Liverpool have done since they made that tactical tweet where... Trent comes inside and they've got the data guys to make a table showing the uh, basically the Premier League since that tactical tweet was made. The lowest team who didn't get promoted or relegated in that period is Chelsea. And they picked up something like 24 points from 25 games or 25 points from 24 games. Either way, really not good. And they seem to be continuing on that trajectory. It's um, You're right, at the beginning of the season, the, the underlying numbers were looking good for Chelsea. Um, they got a little bit unlucky. They had problems with finishing. We all know they brought in Christopher Nkunku, who uh, got injured in pre-season. They've obviously missed him. He's one of the, the most devastating finishers in world football. They've struggled to really find the net from their striker position ever since that that happened. And I think a lot of us were thinking, well, you know, the, the, if the underlying numbers are good, you put in a striker who you might be a little bit more confident with their finishing, then think things will pick pick up. But it, it just seems as though the, the underlying numbers are sort of starting to tail off a little bit. Although having said that, I'm just, I've got the, the expected goal difference table in front of me here and Chelsea are very slightly behind Aston Villa. Um, there's very different conversations uh, between the, 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 the prospects of those two teams right now. Um, yeah, I guess the, the, the question with, with Chelsea again is, you know, it, 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 they're starting to look like they're on that Manchester United trajectory, right, where... They have this massive culture change. They seem to have this grand plan in place, but what seems to have transpired is they're bringing in a new coach, hoping that he'll solve all of the problems around them. When it doesn't happen, they they bring in another one. So we've seen Graham Potter, we've seen Frank Lampard, um, and then then Pochettino now. And I I guess there comes a point at which you you think, well, is the issue here maybe more deep-seated than simply the the coach can't get the, the most out of the players? That's sort of probably where I would come down to. I think you can raise questions about... You know, it's been a long time since Pochettino was managing in the Premier League. It, are his methods still applicable? That's a debate that can be had. But for me, the, the more underlying issue here is, we talked about it with Manchester United, the culture is so important on, off, off the pitch, impacts on the pitch. Right now, it's, it's starting to look questionable. How, how do you get out of this kind of slump? What do you think, Tim? It's, yeah, echoes of Man United and, you know, Ten Hag. Is that and... bad? Because they've got, at least they've got, a football structure they have sporting directors they have a recruitment plan which is to recruit the best 
young talent. So there is some sort of identity there. I know it's sort of framed underneath Todd Bowley and just spending loads of cash. But even within that, there has been a bit of a revision that they have sort of changed their approach as well. So is it really as bad as United? But also short-term recruitment has been terrible. I think Sterling was a good addition, but you can't you can't point to many others. Um, and that's hence why in their last 39 games, they've got 39 points, which is the worst performance in a calendar year by any team that hasn't been relegated in Premier League history. So they're the worst non-relegated team in Premier League history over the past 12 months. You can't really argue with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I know they've had problems with injuries, but um, they're horrifically mismanaged over a number of years now. We we take it for granted that they're a laughing stock, but they're 12th in the table. It's mind-boggling how much money they've spent to get to where they are now. They don't even have Europe this season as a distraction. They should be training every week and getting better, but you don't see that. They look nice on the ball, but they're so vulnerable when they lose it. They've got such a soft centre. I don't really know what they are, to be honest, other than rubbish. <laughs> I think as well, the infrastructure that we're talking about here is Todd Bowley coming in and thinking, I can apply an American sports model here and find a lot of upside, which I think, you know, on the face of it is, is true. But the problem is, is because we've seen so much upheaval, just it just takes time for these things to, to settle down. And um, I think that's a, a big part of what it is. It's, there's so much change all at once. I mean, last season, the story of Graham Potter was they had a squad so big that they couldn't train functionally. Yeah. They've started solving those problems, but they're now in a situation where they're having to deal with FFP issues by selling young players, youth players, moving their academy products on. And again, it's, they're creating more problems by solving problems. And I think what they need now is just stability and, and, and the, the, the consistency to be able to actually start pulling out results. And they're not going to have Rhys James for for quite a long time. He's been ruled out uh, with another hamstring injury, which is a a blow for him. A a quick word on Sheffield United. I mean, we're sort of saying how bad Chelsea are at the moment. Chris Wilder will will be licking his lips, especially having got a win under his belt. And we'll be thinking, well, yeah, we could do something here. Do you think? Yeah, he's a spiky man and he likes soft underbellies and Chelsea have one of those. I mean, it looks pretty much over for Sheffield United a couple of months ago when, I mean, I was at Bramall Lane for the 8-0 defeat to Newcastle and that's quite difficult to to get out of my mind. And I still think it's probably too late for him to stay up, but the last couple of results have been quietly impressive with Wilder coming in. Only a 1-0 loss to Liverpool late on, which on the face of it, is doing well, they're top of the league, and they beat Brentford, who takes some beating. And so both of those are reasons for optimism. And Chelsea, I'm not actually sure, like I said, it's the best, it's the worst non-relegated team in the league. If we're talking about who's going to be slipping down towards it, I don't think Chelsea going to be relegated, but they're the exact ilk of team who Sheffield United would be wanting to play right now. Right, let's talk about Newcastle now. They're up against um, Fulham, and we've mentioned directions a lot on this podcast. Newcastle, their last two games in the Premier League, uh, aside from that exit to AC Milan in the uh, Champions League, they've lost their last two games by an aggregate score of 7-1. Fulham have scored 10 in their last two and haven't conceded. Where do we stand on Newcastle now? Is it With all their injuries, Jacob, is this weirdly a blessing in disguise that they can just sort of refocus on getting back into the Champions League via the league now it's a tough one to say whether it's a good thing because of the amount of sort of emotional energy which has been expended on the european campaign and the extent to which being back in europe has sort of formed part of this identity of regrowth sort of on the injuries 
that's another thing to discuss because yes, they have had lots of injuries and yes, that has influenced lots of games. I think particularly maybe the Tottenham game a week or two ago. But if you take the loss to AC Milan in midweek, I have a hard time saying that that was down to injuries. They brought on good players off the bench like likes of Alexander Izak, of Sean Longstaff. They had the game under control after 60 minutes and let it slip with their own defensive errors and then they justifiably went to attack to win the game and score the goal they went through. They just didn't do a good enough job of it. The good thing about Newcastle is they respond to wobbles well. They had one at the start of the year. They got absolutely thrashed by Brighton and came back to then be unbeaten until the next international break. There's a couple of times last season where they did the same. Howe has shown that he is able to get aside and without adding anything new to it, recharge them. He's just going to have to keep doing it, keep doing it again. But with returning players, there's every chance he'll be able to do that. They're four points off the top five, Newcastle. I've checked in with you on on various other things with Manchester United, with with Everton and their points deduction. Newcastle going out of the Champions League. How did how did you did you get some sort of joy out of that? Why why would I? I don't know. What would the reason be? Because of who they are now, Newcastle. Uh, no, I don't don't particularly get any. Joy no. out of that. I don't. I don't think it's it's the big. Sort it's not of, good for the coefficient, is it? No, it's not good. No, Gazball's on its on its way to the Europa now, <laughs> in the Champions League. Mm. Um, it's it's a it's a good game. It's a horrible time to play Fulham. This last team you want to play, They're completely re-energized as opposed to Newcastle look, look out on their feet. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's gone under undervalued a little bit. The the resurgence of Fulham the last uh, last few weeks it sort of reverted to back to last season's mean. I think. And with Raul Jimenez scoring, yeah, oh, how much do you like no, seeing him score? No, it's great. I, honestly, like it's been a tragedy watching watching him sort of disintegrate from genuinely. Well, for my money, one of the best number nines in the Premier League at that time, and also possibly in Europe. And the kind of clubs that were looking at him back that up, and the numbers back that up in the Wolves team. You know, he was outstanding. So for what happened to him, I mean, the guy nearly died. There's no other way of saying it. He could have died. So. And it took so much for him to get back up just on the pitch, and then so much more to build his way up to being Wolves number nine again, and then to try and become the player he was again has proved impossible up to now. And it's been horrible to watch. It's been really tough to watch. You know, he's like throwing his headband to the floor and like just. It must be one of the hardest things in sport. It's he can't. He hasn't been able to do the things that he could do two years earlier, and that's not to do with sort of fitness or playing at a high level and just not being up to it. It's been a massive psychological struggle. So to see him scoring again, happy again, it's it's a beautiful thing. And it's great for Fulham. You know, we've had a really disruptive few months with Mitrovic going, Silva possibly going, Palina as well. They've had injury issues and it feels like everything's sort of coming together now and they, they look great again. And yeah, really pleased for, for him and his. I'm going to skip straight on to another game, which has obviously got the potential to be a really attractive game and that is Arsenal against Brighton. Uh, Arsenal obviously having to try and get back on track after losing against Aston Villa. They've got Liverpool coming up prior to Christmas as well. They have to get back on track against Brighton, don't they? Yeah, and I think Brighton probably presents quite a nice opportunity to do that for Arsenal. I think what we've seen from Arsenal this season is that 
when teams have sat deep and been a little bit more reticent to go forward, those have been the, the games where they've maybe not got the results they would have wanted to. Uh, we've seen them in the Champions League putting up big scores against teams who are maybe a little bit more gregarious in their in their play style. And I think that's what we expect of Brighton. Brighton have struggled to keep clean sheets this this season. They have a very aggressive play style structurally. They like to get players forward. That will could could represent the sort of game where if things go the right way for Arsenal, then they they could. Uh, get back on on, on the win, winning ways in the in the Premier League, but equally having said that, Arsenal did lose to Brighton at the end of last season. Brighton can be devastating in in uh, in, in sort of transition. That will be something that, that Arsenal will want to avoid. But again, Arsenal, as we said towards the beginning of this podcast, their their defence is what sets them apart from everyone else at the moment. So they're very well set up to avoid those counter attacking situations where where they uh, where, where Brighton can be so devastating so yeah it'll be a, it'll be a fun game I think and, and uh, I think that you know it should suit Arsenal quick word on um, Bournemouth against Luton as well and Donny Iriola it shows if you just have a little bit of faith everything will be fine that's right isn't it yeah it goes back to what we've said a few times earlier in this podcast that you need a plan and you need to stick with that plan and you need to trust the resources which have been thrown at that plan and it's happened with Iriola and the first time there's real signs of that was against Newcastle where they kind of went toe-to-toe with them had a ding-dong for 45 minutes and came out much better for it and they've just maintained that I mean Ten Hag won manager of the month in November which when you can consider what Iriola's been up to seems an absolute travesty so uh, here's hoping Andoni gets a nice Christmas present uh, later this month. Final word uh, about this Premier League weekend, um, are you? You're not going to be watching a, a Premier League game this weekend, are you, Tim? No, I'm going to Zagreb to watch Dynamo Zagreb or Dynamo Zagreb, as I'll find out over the weekend yes. against Hajduk Split, the Croatian Ding Dong Derby. And we'll be able to find out about how it goes if I get back in one piece because uh, it does look quite tasty. Uh, you can read about it next week on the Athletic. Look forward to it, Jacob. Where are you going? I am off this weekend. Oh, are you? I am. I'm not uh, not covering a game. I'm free as a bird, so I'll be consuming all of them, of course, in my back cave with dual screens up. <laughs> uh, it's funny you should say that because um, John actually does have one of those, presumably. I never watch more than one game at a time. Oh, no, no. and then you watch it back on triple speed or double, something. Only double speed. Sort of strapped down to some sort of this, this, like this parody, This parody caricature that you're drawing on me, I really don't like. No? Yeah, no. It's true, though, isn't it? I watch a lot of football. I watch yeah. a lot of football. Yeah. That is it for today. Thank you very much, John. Great to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. And to you, Tim. Thanks, Adam. Are you going to be on next week? Don't know. I haven't been asked yet. I'm asking you now. Okay? All right, okay. Yeah, I'm asking you it's now. It's not normally you ask. It's no, I know it's not, but I'm going to, I just want to just, just try and be here next week if you can. Oh, God. Okay, and Jacob. Thank you. Pleasure to see this podcast going in the right direction. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well done. Uh, Io is going to be back on Monday. Uh, we'll be back next week. Don't miss it for another Premier League weekend preview. Oh, yeah. And with Christmas coming up, you can now gift the Athletic this holiday season because you can get a one-year subscription at the special discounted price of just nineteen ninety-nine in either dollars or pounds by simply heading to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. So that is The Athletic for the year for just $19.99. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you next week. Have a great weekend. Sports. 
The Athletic.